Hi, and welcome to Journeys to Belonging podcast with host Dr. Eileen Winokur, featuring awesome educators and leaders who share their journeys, advice, and personal stories about feeling a sense of belonging. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Journeys to Belonging. On my episode today, I have someone that I'm not really sure when I met her online, but it has, hasn't been a really long time. But what impressed me about her is her love for math, her love for having others love math, and um, just really excited to have Alice Aspinall on my podcast today So and learn more about what she's doing. Hi, Alice. Welcome. Hi, hi, Eileen. Thanks for having me on. I'm so happy to be here. Really grateful. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. And, and I'm really grateful that you have time because I know how busy you are. So I didn't really say very much or anything at all other than you, Alice Aspinall and math. There's so much more to you than that. So please tell our listeners all about what you're into, what you're doing. Thanks, Eileen. Yes, my name is Alice Aspinall. I am a high school math teacher by day. I've been teaching high school math for 13, about 13 years now. Before I was officially in the classroom, I did a lot of tutoring in mathematics from kindergarten um, all the way up to grade 12. And I've also taught at the college level. So I've been in the, the math teaching world for uh, quite a while. Mm-hmm. And On the side, I have this, like, since my children were born, my children are are six and eight now, uh, I have this sort of side passion for getting people to really learn about math and what makes it so enjoyable and fun and interesting. And so that's what I sort of do with the younger um, ages because of my children. So that's sort of an aside, because I do teach high school, um, Mm -hmm. but then I have like this side passion of mine and come uh, along with that I have written children's math books and I run uh, social media accounts that provide parents educators any grown-up really with ideas to start math conversations with the young people in their lives with the hopes that we can uh, create now a generation a new generation who loves math and it doesn't have as much uh, math anxiety as the current generation does. Yeah. Oh, so I'm so excited to talk to you about all of that. And we'll get into um, all of it, actually, uh, in my questions. But the first question I always ask my guests is, if I mention the word belonging or feeling a sense of belonging, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Well, to me, thinking about belonging in the math sense Uh, is so important because math has traditionally been been a subject that has been um, reserved for only a special few, right? We we used to believe that you were born with the ability to do math or you weren't. And so there was like a math person or not a math person. And that became very evident in math classrooms and the math world. And that is not the case. There has been a lot of research now, thanks to uh, people like Dr. Joe Bowler, who have shown that there is no such thing as a math person. We are all born with the ability to do math. 
And that, so that needs to now become evident within our math classrooms. And so when I hear belonging, I think of my math classrooms and do the students in my classes feel like they belong in a math class, whatever the level may be or whatever the grade may be. And I think that starts at a young age. It starts well before they get to my classrooms in high school. They, they've already made up their mind by then. And then we're working really hard to try to change their mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yes. There's so many connections, so many things I'm thinking about because I was an elementary teacher, a third grade teacher, homeroom teacher, of course. So I taught math and um, I did that for four years. Then I was principal, but my last sort of job was five years as director of a foundation program a pre-college program for students who didn't um, succeed in getting the high enough score in order to take regular undergraduate math classes or English classes. I'm going to tell you a really quick story which connects to exactly what you said. So of course these students who weren't doing well in math didn't score well enough had already like you said like your high school students had already formulated in their minds that they that they weren't good at math. And no matter how many semesters of extra math that they were gonna take, they were never going to get there. And one day I had a parent, a father come in and in front of his son, who was already begging me to please just pass me out of this misery. um, And I said, but you're gonna have to take math in undergraduate. His father said, well, I'm not good in math. So my son's, you know, like it's in the genes. So I'm not good in math. My son's not good in math. And so let's just, you know, move this along. And I thought, please don't say that in front of your son. That is not true, first of all. Um, so yeah, I'm so glad that you've talked about that. So that's yeah, what I that, really want. Yeah, go ahead. We hear that kind of a thing all the time from parents. And so, you know, where we're trying to change mindsets, both um, parents and educators of other disciplines, we don't want to hear that kind of uh, language around students who are already struggling to believe that they belong in the math world. Right. And they're already feeling like they're not succeeding. And so this is sort of an excuse for them, but it's so unfortunate. So um, as a math teacher who strives to inspire everyone, not even hopes, but strives to inspire everyone to love and learn math. Um, Share just how you got started on this journey. I know you mentioned your two young daughters and that you had tutored math, but, you know, sort of go back and how did that all really get started? Yes. So my children, I have one boy and one girl actually. um, And they are like, when they were very, very young and I, I have a lot of friends, too, who have children who are very young. Mm-hmm. Uh, those friends, uh, fellow teachers or not teachers, they would ask me as a math teacher, what can I do to help my child be successful in math later on? Mm-hmm. I had one, uh, one colleague tell me that um, math growing up was always an out. Uh, her parents said to her, they were never good at math. And so that was the one subject she was allowed to fail. She was allowed to fail math because they knew that they were never good at it and they didn't care what she got in it. She just had to do her best. And she didn't want to do that to her children now. Like she really wanted to push them to to do well, not give them that escape, right? Mm -hmm. Like she was given. And so 
it kind of started um, a few years ago. I had read Joe Bowler's book, Mathematical Mindsets, which, which combines like Carol Dweck's research of growth mindset with mathematics. It's a, it's a phenomenal book. I had read that uh, to help me with my own teaching. And that was really a, a crucial turning point for me in my teaching career. And then that coupled with the, the friends of mine who were talking about math and how to um, build this better relationship with math for their children. I went looking for a children's book that addressed this fear of mathematics for kids. You know, like in my house, we really like books. We have a book for every um, milestone, um, you know, like the potty training book or you're going to be a big sister book, right? Like all of those milestones. We have a book for everything. We love books. Mm-hmm. And so I thought there must be one about math. And I couldn't find one. Oh, wow. And so that's not specific to math at that time. Now there are, mm-hmm. now there are a lot and they're all, and they're all great. Um, but at the time, there weren't a lot just specific to math. Lots of growth mindset, but nothing specific to math. Yeah. And so that's where all of this began. I set out to write a book about growth mindset specific to math that incorporated the ideas that I had learned from Joe Bowler's book and other research that I had done. And then with some experience that I've had implementing these ideas in the classroom and the success mm-hmm. that I've had implementing these ideas in the classroom. Yeah. And from that um, came like my social media accounts, which then offer um, parents and grownups free ideas. So it all just started really with conversations with other parents who wanted something that they could use with their kids. And I thought a book is a great idea because we love books and mm-hmm. many people like you know, to bring a story to make things real for their children. Right. And so that's, that's really how everything started uh, with me, my children, my friends, that moment where I started learning about this in my classroom and it all came together. Yeah. Oh, that's so amazing. And I can see it happening, you know, somebody who's really passionate about the subject and then seeing that others really want to learn more about how they can become more comfortable with the subject and then you looking and not finding something. So since we're talking about your first book, I'd love for you to talk about that first book and then the other books that you've written, because that's the, not the only one you have. The approach that you took is, uh, let me, I'm asking you, is the approach that you took for the parent to sit down with the child and have a discussion with them. What was in your mind when you wrote that first book? Has that consi- uh, has that stayed the same with the other books, or has that changed? So the first book that I wrote and that I initially talked about here is called "Everyone Can Learn Math," and it's a children's fiction story about a girl who thinks she is not made out to learn math. She can't do math. She gives up. Her mom is trying to help her. Um, her teachers try to help her. She's, she just convinced that she can't learn math. And so in this story, um, she, she has conversations with friends and she kind of realizes all the things that her friends are doing took a lot of hard work and practice and they didn't give up. So maybe she can reapply this idea to learning math. So through the help of her friends, her teacher, her mom, she goes back to it and has some success and has that good feeling. The story, the intention is to read it with your child, not the child to read it alone, so that a conversation can come from it. Because although it's a book about math, 
I think the lesson there is still about productive struggle and perseverance and can be applied to lots of other things too. So there can be a conversation around that with your child when you're reading it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And do you see teachers also using it in the classroom? Yes, I have had a lot of teachers tell me they use it in the classroom. It's it's a popular read aloud um, at the beginning of the school year, first day of school, mm-hmm. setting the tone for um, the math classroom right from the beginning. So I have seen a lot of um, teachers use it as a read aloud, and I've seen mm-hmm. teachers. I, I had a I had a professor in college contact me and tell me he read it to his class in college, his math wow. class, because he was having some negative attitudes in his class, and that they really enjoyed it. So. I think everybody enjoys a nice story time once in a while and teachers are doing really great things with it too. Uh, having their students then create their own stories about uh, overcoming math anxiety Mm -hmm. journals reflecting and that sort of thing which I think is really good too. Yeah and then do you find that as a result of talking about it and putting it out there in a in a safe environment so you know we talk about belonging they have to feel that the environment is safe for them to be able to share that because it's difficult for us to say, well, I don't feel I'm really good at math, but, and I'd like to get better, but, and, and I have anxiety over it, or I'm anxious about taking tests and so forth. So where, where do you see that going in terms of how it's helping students being able to, to talk about it? Cause obviously if I have math anxiety, because I write about it, doesn't necessarily mean that I've overcome it. So, mm-hmm. What do you suggest that teachers and parents could do to kind of, now you've opened the door, how do you continue that journey with them about it? Yeah, I totally agree. Math anxiety is a really um, complicated issue. It's real for people who are experiencing it. Mm-hmm. So I think that the, the most important thing for teachers and parents is to acknowledge that the math anxiety is real that students are feeling it and that it's a real feeling. And I think, I always think if they are experiencing this math anxiety, that is taking up space in their brain, that space that cannot be used to then learn math and struggle through the math problems, which is really what we want. So we have to try to give some, give some more space in the brain, alleviate some of that math anxiety so that then they can learn math. That's a really tricky thing to do because coupled with that math anxiety can be years of math trauma, can be um, systemic. Some of our uh, marginalized students have experienced, um, have been put in situations where they've start to believe that they can't do math Mm -hmm. um, because of their ethnicity. There's like, it's very complicated. Yeah. So we need to be very careful, but I think it's important to acknowledge that they have that math anxiety and that it is real. Then we can start to uncover how can we get past it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if a parent just dismisses it or a teacher dismisses it, that's not going to help them deal with the feelings that they're having, right? Acknowledge right. the feelings and how can we get through them? Yeah. And that, that allows them to open up about those feelings when they come up again. Whereas if they're shut down or they think it's an easy fix because I talked about it and now I'm over it, you know, they're not, they're not necessarily going to go back to it. Yeah. Um, and are they as likely to open up to you and, and work with you to get past those feelings if they don't believe that you believe mm-hmm. that they're having real feelings and that they can 
get past it, right? We, we want our students yeah. to really feel like we believe in them. We always yeah. say we believe in them, but we want them to really feel like we believe in them. Yeah. And they're big feelings too, especially math anxiety, but it's not just math anxiety. It's this, sometimes it's just the attitude that I, I did poorly in a grade level of math, or I never really acquired certain basic skills. Mm -hmm. And so those basic skills, we know how math builds up from the time students are in kindergarten with learning patterning to addition and subtraction, division and multiplication, fractions and all of that. It all builds on each other. So if at any point, that's why I love the fact that you start early. If at any point I've missed something and there's a gap, even though I might not have math anxiety, I've already, uh, you know, have it in my mind that I'm, I'm not able to do math. And so yes. yeah. are there, yeah, are there any practices that we do in, I'm, I'm thinking of one particular, so I'm going to, I'm going to ask you and, and maybe there isn't anything specific that we're doing in the math class, but you did mention the systemic type of uh, problems that we might have with teaching math or learning math. So is the timed multiplication test, you know, or the timed uh, addition, uh, you have one minute, see how many you can answer, which was supposed to encourage us to be faster at, at you know, processing these problems, become more um, automatic about it. But I read a number of years ago that this really works the opposite way. Maybe not for every student. How, what's your feeling about that? Are there any other practices that we in the classroom should be more aware of, more vocal about using, not using? What would you recommend? Yeah, the timed multiplication tests um, have really uh, gotten a bad reputation in the last few years for um, being the cause of a lot of math stress for students um, because they're timed and they value speed. And when we're learning math, it takes some people longer than others, just like anything else that we're learning. It some, takes some people longer than others to learn things and get better at things. And so speed is probably not something that we want to um, recognize and praise. Uh, so those time tests are really not not good for creating math anxious students that has been that definitely has been proven I think the idea is to motivate students to memorize those math facts mm -hmm. um, with the intention that like the math facts later on will help them be better math students but there are a lot of other ways to build fluency in those math facts that don't have to rely on strict um, memorization Mm -hmm. right gate playing games and just being in situations where those um, facts come up over and over again and that repetition happens in a more natural way can build the fluency and sort of that memorization happens naturally rather than just sitting down and memorizing those math facts so there definitely is a, is a big push to get away from those we used to call them mad minutes I don't know yes. if they're called nine minutes when I was in school. Like, I don't yes. know if that's a Canadian thing or not, but um, yeah. there's definitely a push to sort of go away from that mad minute or like the, um, we used to play a lot of the around the world flashcard game. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that is what everyone else calls them too, where, you know, you yes. have flashcards and the two people are competing against each other. Whoever mm -hmm. says the answer fast, uh, quicker moves on. And then you go right. through each in the class. Mm -hmm. um, all of these things, the intention is to help you build your fluency but I think now all 
memories of those games just brought back um, all of those bad feelings that we associate with math because they made us feel bad rather than encouraging you to learn them and do better. They just made you feel bad at it. Right. Yeah, there was, there was sort of a working with a deficit that, that I couldn't think as fast. Mm -hmm. And so th yeah, there so was really, something wrong. Yeah. yeah, we don't want to praise that speed now. Um, mm -hmm. We want to praise the thinking and the struggling and the process mm -hmm. in learning math with the understanding that everybody gets there at a different pace and in a different way. And that's okay. Yeah, I know there was a lot of debate about common core math for a while. I don't know if that's gone away or not, but for me, when I first started teaching third grade, the math textbook that we chose, it was a very brand new school. We had just opened up. I was the only third grade teacher and the, we were only elementary. And the math book that we were using was Addison Wesley, which is not even a company anymore. I think they were bought out by some bigger a publishing company. But what I loved about it, it was very project-based, very task-based. And I was teaching all English language learners. And so it was great because we were able to do those tasks and they were authentic tasks, like planning a party to learn money and, and you know, a, a pizza party to learn fractions and things like that. Is that something that you would recommend for, for younger students and for older students? Um, is not necessarily, but just project-based, but task-based and authentic so that students realize that math is all around them. Because I think sometimes they think they're just learning math in the classroom because they have to learn it. But it's math exactly. is everywhere, isn't it? Yes, yes. I'm so glad you brought this up, Eileen, because this is exactly what I'm trying to um, show people in my, like on my Instagram and Twitter and um, I'm on Facebook. I am trying to show people that math is everywhere around us. We can find math everywhere in the world if we're looking for it. And those moments provide opportunities for us to have conversations about math with our children or students in a natural way so that they don't think that math is just in the classroom on a worksheet. Mm -hmm. So I'm a really big believer of looking for the math. I have a series of books, look for the math around you. So we want to find where math exists and use it as a chance to talk about that math. And I'm talking like brief conversations, mm -hmm. just a few minutes long, but take that opportunity when you're going for a walk and you see numbers or you see lines or shapes somewhere, talk about the math that exists there because then students start to value the math that they're doing in the classroom as well as like, oh, that connects to that one time I had that talk on that walk about a shape I saw, right? So we're connecting it and we're seeing that it exists all around us and it's fun and it's happy and it's light and it's not just worksheets sitting at your desk. So that's right. really what I'm trying to, to bring to the table with all of my social media posts. I try to post, I won't say every day, but I try to post often mm -hmm. with new ideas. I know that often as English uh, second language teachers or multilingual teachers, uh, I don't know what term they're using now, we, we focus on the, uh, the vocabulary and often content teachers don't realize that they're also teaching English. 
Uh, and so, but there is so much vocabulary in everything, but especially mm -hmm. in math. And often the problem with my students in the math foundation program was they just didn't understand or know the basic terms. So is that something also that you talk about either in your blog or, or um, in the books about the amount of voca basic vocabulary we need to know in order to associate it with, with math and understand the concepts of math from the beginning? Yeah, math concepts have a lot of different vocabulary. In, in math, I find there's more than one word for the same thing, like lots of different words to describe the same thing. Mm -hmm. um, so it can be overwhelming. Um, the, the advice that I would give is like, when we think about real world math, we think about word problems mm -hmm. and I think like word problems in a textbook. And I think sometimes those are really wordy. And then that is an automatic barrier for students, uh, whether they're English language learners or not. I think that those word problems sometimes put, uh, you put up that barrier immediately when you see right. them because they're very wordy and that can be difficult. So I think if we approach real world math as finding math in real life and then starting to slide that vocabulary in as you go, the right. more you see the new vocab, of course, the more you get used to using it and then it doesn't feel different or new, right? So that's right. how I would approach that. Yeah. You just published a, a book recently. I don't know, if, is it your third or fourth book or more than that? How many books do you have out now, Alice? So that's my second fiction book. That's okay. sort of the, the sequel to the first Everyone Can Learn Math. It's a fictional story as well. I have a six book series that's a nonfiction. Okay. Um, it's like photo, it's like a photo book with mm -hmm. prompts so that you can start conversations about math, um, looking for those opportunities around you. So that, that book that just came out is called Let's Explore Math. And it's actually a book with four short stories in it, same characters as the first one, um, but there's a lot more math in this one. So they are, they've encountered a situation they're in uh, that requires them to solve a math problem and they talk it out together. And there are it, it also has a lot of math visuals, I'm calling them, like it, I have pictures of showing the math and the thinking mm -hmm. in sort of a different way, not such a traditional way. Um, and so there are four different topics, multiplication, division, uh, fractions, and money being dealt with in that book. It's a, it, that book really covers a lot, and there's a guide for parents and educators in there as well with uh, extension questions before reading, during reading, after reading. There's, there's nice. so much in that book. I'm, I'm really proud of it. Yeah, I can see how, how your thought process has developed over time and how that has influenced the kinds of things that you're encouraging others to do and then putting, putting in your books. So, you know, I had mentioned Common Core and the, and the big complaint about Common Core math was the fact that they want, uh, students need to just add. Why can't they just add or just divide? And uh, I, I was always coming from, but what they're trying to show, at least what I understood, was they're trying to show is there are different approaches to math. And if we don't understand there are different approaches, then I'm assuming, because I never really took the higher level of math, that it affects them later on. So how do, how do you view that? And in terms of the, the book that you just published, is that also in there that there are different ways to get at the same answer. 
That's what I'm trying to say, you know, yeah. and we don't have to answer it in the same way. There isn't just one way to answer a problem. Right. And isn't it wonderful that we can all think of a problem in a, and have a different process and all get to a similar answer? I think that's a wonderful thing. And, and isn't it great to empower our children with the idea that you can take different paths in solving a problem and that doesn't make you wrong? And that's what I love about the, the idea of different approaches in solving math problems. And common core is not really a term we use in Canada, um, but I'm, I'm familiar with the, like what you're talking about with that approach where I was taught in school and I would assume you were similar. We were taught math in a, a very um, algorithm-based approach, mm -hmm. right? If when we learned how to add two digit and two digit numbers, we were taught the algorithm vertical mm -hmm. algorithm yeah and this is these are the steps and this is how you do it now go and do it and then for division like we were taught long division go and do it this these are the steps and now you can do it um and so i, I guess now in elementary school i think they're doing a great job of showing students that there are a lot of different ways to mm -hmm. solve these problems and you don't have to rush immediately to a vertical algorithm on paper you can think it through in different ways. And what I love about it is seeing how even my own children, my daughter's in uh, grade three, they can do mental math in ways that I was never taught how to do. Wow. I, I did an honors math degree um, and I could not do mental math in the way that like I used to have, um, I have had international students come into my classroom from other countries and they could do mental math like I couldn't believe how they could do mental math way better like faster than I could mm. um, and so now I've learned a lot of approaches over the years since I've graduated I've taught myself and, and learned a lot of approaches for mental math but to see that our kids now are being taught these approaches mm -hmm. they can add larger numbers in their heads they can multiply in their heads by breaking numbers down and mm -hmm. and then putting them back together mm -hmm. that to me is a is a beautiful thing. Why don't we want our children to be able to do that? Right. I feel like that is a gift. And so right. if they learn all these other approaches and then they get taught the algorithm, the vertical algorithm for adding or multiplying or whatever, then in my eyes, they have all these different strategies in their toolbox right. and they'll use the one that's appropriate for them in any given situation. Mm -hmm. And I don't yeah. think there's anything wrong with that. I don't think we need to only learn the algorithm because that we're memorizing a process without really understanding why we're doing it. I'm not saying mm -hmm. it's not a good process. It definitely has value. But if we learn these other approaches first, then we can right. understand why that algorithm works. And I right. think that's really good for students and it's going to help them with higher level math too. Yeah, and are you seeing that in your high school students, or do you see that in your high school students that they've learned in this very linear way or algorithmic way, and that hampers them to be able to understand or be able to approach a higher, you know, the functions and things like that, calculus, pre-calculus, and some of the other types of math, even algebra, I would think. Yeah, I think that learning different strategies for understanding how number sense works is going to benefit them in their higher level functions, calculus, whatever classes always, because then there's an understanding of how numbers work, whether we're talking about whole numbers or fractions, like fractions is always a big one. Um, I think that 
when the understanding is there, that is always going to benefit them in solving larger problems. Even just if it's just for estimating to know if your answer makes sense or not. Yeah, it's, it's true. And it's, you know, you were saying at the very beginning, it's very difficult to get a high school student and try to have them unlearn what they learned. And then, uh, you know, sort of, because what you end up finding is that they have misconceptions coming into the math classroom based on what they learned earlier. And that's not to say that the teachers weren't good or the curriculum wasn't good, mm -hmm. but we need to really move away from this one size fits all because we all have different ways of thinking. And we're also hearing from businesses, from corporations, from, from entrepreneurs, that if we really want to have the, the kinds of businesses and the creativity, cognitive thinking levels in the future to move this planet forward, we need to have that kind of free thinking. And if we fix ourselves on the algori algorithmic kind of thinking that, that really kind of pigeonholes us. So um, have you seen that? And you know, what are the approaches that you take in your high school classroom when you have students who are having difficulty um, with, with math? What do, you, what do you first do with them? Yeah, so in, in my math classes, the, on the very first day, our approach is to create a culture for our class, for the semester, whatever it may be, if you're not semester for the year, um, that shows students, this is how we're going to learn in our classroom. And we want to set that tone right at the very beginning mm -hmm. so that they know what to expect. And for us in our, in our high school classes, um, that means problem solving, collaboration, showing our thinking. And all of these approaches are really from um, the thinking classroom and Peter Lilladal's uh, research. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it's phenomenal stuff. And we've been implementing it for years. And the, the idea is, like you said, corporations want students who have soft skills, mm -hmm. who can work with each other, who can um, think out loud and process their thinking and problem solving, right? Mm -hmm. And so this is allowing our students to gain those soft skills while at the same time learning the math as well. Of course, the math is important, but really what do we want our kids who are not going into a university program for math or, or something that uses math? What do we want them to learn? The soft skills that's going, that are going to make them successful right. um, in, in the job world, right? Mm -hmm. So those, uh, those um, strategies from the thinking classroom coupled with growth mindset approaches have really changed the culture in our high school math classrooms. And, and we're seeing students who really like math class, who believe in themselves and, you know, look forward to coming into class now. And that, that did exist and can exist in the traditional math mm -hmm. classroom where independent work is valued. Um, but I think for, for some students, it's really a different atmosphere and really needed for them. Right. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're not looking for the one size fits all. So as I, you know, as we're saying, there isn't a wrong or right way to, to conduct a math class, but there are things that we could be aware of because we want to make sure that be, in order to give our, our math students a sense of belonging in the classroom, that we need to open ourselves to learning about other approaches 
so that if this particular approach doesn't work for a student, that we have that sort of uh, pocket full of tools to be right. able to pull out and, and help them. Right, just like we want, we want our students to have lots of different options. Mm -hmm. and it, we, we also want to provide them with, with different approaches as well. And that's not to say that we don't get a student who does not like the collaborative approach. You know, some students really sure. want to work independently. Mm -hmm. So maybe it's a mixture you know, everything has its place. I don't That's devalue true. doing the traditional mm -hmm. um, way sometimes, right? It, it really depends on the group of students and how, how things are going. And there's, there's no one way to do things. Right. Yeah. And I think it's just expanding uh, our, our own abilities to be able to approach and be willing to listen to students if they come up with a different approach for the right answer. Um, you know, often we've heard of situations, I don't think it happens as often now, hopefully, where a teacher has said, no, I, I needed it in this particular way. And even though you got the right answer, I didn't see that the steps you used got you there, like I wanted you to, to go there, you know, you did it differently. And of course, that sends the wrong message to the student. I don't think that happens as often now. But we really need to open ourselves up to the fact that if we, if we tend to do that or our curriculum guides us to, we have to have this type of answer because the end of year test requires them yeah. to know that method. There are still other ways that we can expose them to right. um, seeing other things, right? Yeah, that's a good point because it's complicated. Sometimes our curriculum um, has a hold on, on certain situations and um, methods and in, I can, especially in the higher level math classes, I can appreciate that there are times when we need to see things done a certain way mm -hmm. to um, honor a curriculum expectation or something, but they are still, there's still leeway in many different situations um, to offer those different approaches. Yes. And as we see, it, we really need to find that leeway or find that space in order to be able to let students take advantage of that. And if we have an end of year test or we have a standardized test or something that requires them some kind of state outcome or province outcome that they need to you know, know about, that's fine, but there's nothing wrong with exposing them to a broader range. So they do have this growth mindset, which they need, like you said, the soft skills, we call them, they need to have all of those skills in order to be able to do that. And in terms of being able to take care of themselves in the future, financially, economically, uh, cooking, which mm -hmm. is all to do with math, building, yeah. uh, understanding if they need to buy a carpet, they need to understand and feel good, feel that, have that self-efficacy about math. And if they right. don't, um, you know, my mom failed math in high school in 1940 two or whatever and so she only got a diploma and she had this sort of on her forehead the sticker on her forehead that she was a failure at math all her life and after my father passed away in 2009 she had to take over all the accounts that he used to take care of and her finances and stuff and she found out that she's actually pretty savvy at math so even in her 80s she figured out that she she wasn't bad at math. She just never had the opportunity to be able to learn it in the way that she understood it. And it was 
a yes. hands-on approach that she needed to be able to see it, experience it, and learning it from a teacher at that time, you know, that was the only way to learn it. She just didn't really understand it. Yeah, and that brings up a really another really good point. Sometimes it's not clicking for us in high school, but we go back as at it as adults. And then things click and we can now learn things that we weren't able to learn before. And sometimes that's maturity or a different approach or just a change in views because you're older, right? I have a lot of adults telling me that they're relearning high school math just Mm -hmm. for fun because now they think it's fun, like interesting and like a puzzle, like math is is very much like a puzzle. And It sure um, is. I loved math for that reason. Yeah. And so they're relearning it now. Why? Just because they want to, they want to prove to themselves that they can, they don't think they could, they didn't in high school, but now they want to show that they can. And so often, like sometimes it just takes us going back to something that we had trouble with going back a week later. Sometimes it's years later, but isn't it great to see that now in in your adult life, you can go back and relearn math. And that is a great strategy that I tell parents sometimes when parents say, Oh, I, I don't like that stuff. I didn't learn how to do that. No, thanks. Mm. Instead, I never learned that. Can we learn it together? Let's learn it together now. Like it's a great way to reframe your thinking. No, you didn't do it in high school, but can you learn it now with the help of your child while they're learning it? Of course you can. Right. Yeah. We we learned all, we learn all kinds of technology from them why not the math you know and and they're actually so related I was going to ask you if you have any particular stories where um, parents have read your book to the or books to the their children and have realized that oh I'm learning also I'm appreciating math now in a different way yes yes parents can most definitely reframe their vocabulary And they're thinking around children just because you didn't do it or you couldn't do it when you were younger does not mean that has to be the same for your child now. And I always use this example of like this analogy, um, raising a daughter, we are told to be very careful about our um, body image, what we say about our bodies around, especially daughters, right? And so why can't we use that same frame of mind now with learning math? Why do we want to tell our kids that they're going to be bad at math no matter what, because you were bad at math? We don't want to do that to our children, right? I don't want to tell my kid, um, you, I'm a terrible drawer. Don't bother learning how to draw. You can't draw. Like, why, why would we do that? But it's, for some reason, it's okay to do it with math. Like we've just said it's okay, right? As a, as a generation, we're okay with saying that about math, but not other things. So we would never dream of saying, oh, I can't swim. So you're not going to learn how to swim either. <laughs> like we would never do this, right? I know. I love those examples. That's so perfect, Alice. Oh, gosh, I'm so enjoying this conversation. Is there anything else that um, you wanted to talk about or any other advice that you, you'd like to give uh, our listeners uh, about what you're doing or, or about math in general, the things that you're, you've been talking about this whole time, which I love. Thank you, Eileen. Thank you. Um, I would just say, be very mindful of the things that we say around our children and around our students, even as a different subject teacher. If you teach English, you don't want to tell the class how much you hate math when they come in talking about math. 
right? We want to be very cognizant of the words that we're using around math and how that's influencing what our children, our Mm -hmm. students, how they feel about math as well, because they listen and they pick up on everything that we say. So I've had a lot of success with just um, offering other suggestions to people on how to reframe uh, phrases and wording Mm -hmm. around learning math. I have some examples on my website of some, they're like posters or um, PDFs that you can print. Parents Mm -hmm. really like them. Educators like them. Instead of saying this, try saying this. Just to reframe our vocabulary, I'm a really big believer in the words that we use being very powerful and they hold meaning and we don't just want to use them without acknowledging how they're going to affect the little minds around us. So I would leave you with that. My website is everyonecanlearnmath.com and those free resources are there. All of my social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook is all linked on there as well. If you want to follow me, because I do offer a lot of um, photos and uh, questions and prompts that could go along with those photos and those real life scenarios where you can start talking about math with your kids. Oh, that's wonderful. And what, what I like about what you're doing, and, and we started by talking about belonging from the very beginning and how passionate you are about making sure that students feel a sense of belonging in their math classroom is that we do need to watch what we say wherever they are, whether it's home or in school for whatever subject area they are in because words matter. And it really, if we want to make sure that students feel that sense of belonging in general, not just in their math class, but in general, we need to honor those feelings, like you said at the very beginning, and then take them from where they are and move them forward. And sometimes the parents need to feel that sense of belonging with, with the idea about math, with, with, you know, that they feel better about themselves growing and learning. And wouldn't that be a great experience to be able to do that with your child? Um, that's that's I, awesome. I agree. Right. And I think that as parents, we do this in other areas. Mm-hmm. And I, I just think that math has gotten a bad rap over the years. Right? We, we all use it as the excuse. But I think we do this as parents, don't we? Like, um, my daughter's really into drawing. She's learning to draw. Will you sit down and draw with me, mom? Yes. She shows me her what she's learned. I show her what I know. We do this with our kids, right? We sure. teach them. There are teachable moments all the time. So can we have those teachable moments around math learning Mm -hmm. instead can they can your or not instead in addition to I should say yes yeah um right when you're out in the yard and you're playing on the swings can you talk about the angle that the swings are making with the swing set can we just Mm -hmm. naturally build in these moments with our children so that they're kind of like oh oh yeah that's math and tell them we're doing math because I think also we want to be explicit always always that, you know, we don't want to hide it from them. We want them to know, hey, we're talking about math right now. Did you know that? Right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, before you had your books out, there was one book I used to read to my third grade class every year, and it's called Math's Curse. It's, I don't, I'm sure I won't say his last name correctly, but it's John Cheska. It's hilarious. I don't know if you've ever read it, but this poor young, this poor little boy is walking around and he doesn't like math. 
And everywhere he goes, he's presented with math. And so it's, it's a really funny story, but I'm really excited about your books and all of them will be linked on, um, on the, in the show notes, along with your website and the connections to all of your social media platforms, um, your, you. your personal ones, and also for, um, for math that are math related for parents and teachers. Alice, this was fantastic. I've so enjoyed learning about all that you're doing and, and I applaud you for it. And I, I hope that uh, our listeners will, will take a look at the books that you've written because I think they're really important to share with our children. Thank you, Eileen. This has been a, a great conversation. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you're inspired by what you heard, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about belonging, check my website, Journeys to Belonging, that's Journeys number two belonging, dot webstarts.com. See you next week.